Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, June 10th. In today's news, the WHO clarifies that asymptomatic people can transmit the coronavirus. Patients who survive because of ventilators face an arduous recovery. And this pandemic is doing what Plan Columbia never could. There's less cocaine on our streets. But first, the big idea. Many Americans may have moved on from the coronavirus, but the coronavirus has not moved on from America. Hospitalizations from the contagion have spiked in at least nine states since Memorial Day. This comes as the number of new cases continues to increase, not just nationally, but worldwide. And more than a dozen states, plus Puerto Rico, have recorded their highest averages of new cases since the pandemic began. In Texas, North and South Carolina, California, Oregon, Arkansas, Mississippi, Utah, and Arizona, there are an increasing number of patients under supervised care since the three-day holiday weekend because of coronavirus infections. These spikes generally began in the past couple weeks and in most states are trending higher. We also learned overnight that members of the D.C. National Guard have tested positive for COVID-19 in the wake of the mass protests over the last 12 days across the nation's capital. The Guard will not tell us the exact number of people who have been infected. Our databases editor, Jacqueline Dupree, who has been obsessively tracking all these numbers for us since March, says the latest inputs in her modeling disprove the notion that the country is seeing a spike in cases solely because of the continued increase in testing. Public health experts and state officials agree with that. Many of these states that have experienced an increase in hospitalizations have also seen an increase in cases, with a handful of states nearing bed capacity. Hospitalizations nationwide are difficult to track because states report numbers in varying ways or not at all. Even states that do report numbers may not have always received complete data from every hospital in the state at the time of their reports. But the trend lines are bad. Texas has reported 75,616 cases overall since the pandemic began. And in 10 of the past 15 days, the state's average of new cases has increased. As of last night, the Lone Star State had reported two consecutive days of record-breaking hospitalizations from the coronavirus. Texas has seen a 36% increase in new cases since Memorial Day, with a record 2,100 current hospitalizations right now because of COVID. Texas was one of the first states to relax their stay-at-home orders. Businesses started to open up in early May, but more of the restrictions have been relaxed in the last week. Arizona tourist sites were packed for Memorial Day weekend. Lake Havasu, a popular vacation destination, was full. And South Carolina, a host of entertainment venues including zoos, aquariums, and water parks, were allowed to open for Memorial Day. In North Carolina, restaurants were allowed to open at reduced capacity, and public pools opened at 50% capacity for the three-day weekend. As of this morning, at least 110,446 of our fellow Americans are dead, and now we have more than 2 million confirmed infections. This is no joke, and these are more than statistics. Let me just briefly tell you about a few faces of the fallen. When Thomas Patagulin learned that he had tested positive for the coronavirus, he called his son to make a joke. Prince Charles had also tested positive, he noted. Now, Thomas said he had something in common with royalty. That lighthearted response was typical. The gregarious doctor wasn't one to brood. 
His son Gino says he could have been friends with anybody. Thomas was seeing patients at his internal medicine practice in Queens. Then two of his patients tested positive. Then the doctor tested positive as well. He died five days after getting the result. Also in Queens, Yaakov Meltzer was a healer of both body and soul, a rabbi and retired physician assistant. He continued serving in a volunteer ambulance corps in his Kew Gardens neighborhood. He knew how to calm people even as he dealt with their medical emergencies. Some called him Rabbi Doctor. His widow, Debbie, says God gave him a gift for medicine and for soothing people. He had won a scholarship to study science in Israel, but once there ended up focusing instead on the Talmud. He returned to the United States and became a rabbi, later earning a master's degree in emergency medicine and working as a physician assistant. Debbie remembers her husband as unassuming and never flaunting. They'd been married 40 years and had eight children. He was 64. In Miami, William Murdoch died of COVID-19 at the hospital where he had worked for more than 30 years. Bill had tended his wife as she battled brain tumors for several years, bedridden and increasingly confused. After her death in 2018, he filled even more roles for their son, Billy, a teenager with severe autism. Former colleagues say at work, Bill never complained about any of that. He was steady and selfless at the University of Miami Hospital, his boss remembers. He'd worked there as an MRI tech, and he was known as someone who calmed anxious patients as they underwent their MRI scans. A simple man, not flashy, but solid and responsible. A fixture. And now he's gone. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this hump day. Number one, the World Health Organization moved to clarify its position on whether people without symptoms are widely spreading the coronavirus, saying much remains unknown about asymptomatic transmission. A comment by a WHO official the day before, calling such transmission very rare, touched off furious scientific debate over the unresolved question and attracted widespread criticism of the organization. Less than 24 hours later, the WHO convened a special news conference to walk back the comments. But what was said on Monday had already been spread widely and seized upon by conservatives and others to bolster arguments that people don't need to wear masks or maintain social distancing precautions. They very much do. The episode sparked criticism of WHO's public health messaging, but also highlighted just how fraud and easily politicized such work remains months into this. Calling the controversy a misunderstanding, Maria von Kerhove, head of the WHO's Emerging Disease and Zoonosis Unit, said that she was trying to respond to a journalist's question when she said asymptomatic transmission was very rare. The Stanford-educated doctor said that they do know that, in fact, this is during the cleanup press conference, some people who do not have any symptoms can transmit and have transmitted the virus to others. And she said the WHO is not changing any of its guidance. The truth is, no one knows for sure how frequently asymptomatic transmission happens. That's the truth. Studies and models have suggested many of those infected never showed symptoms, and it remains an open question whether they are a large force driving transmission. Some countries doing a lot better at contact tracing than we are, working backwards from confirmed cases, have not found many instances of asymptomatic spread. At the same time, WHO officials acknowledged yesterday that some of their modeling has suggested that as much as 41% of transmission may be due to asymptomatic people. Adding to the confusion here are differing definitions of what it means to be asymptomatic. 
Some people who were infected never show any symptoms. Experts would consider those truly asymptomatic cases. But a lot of people show symptoms only later on and could be spreading the virus before those symptoms manifest themselves. Those would be considered pre-symptomatic cases. Further complicating matters is the fact that for some people, symptoms are so mild or manifest themselves in less expected ways like muscle aches or diarrhea or minor cases of the chills instead of the classic fever and cough. So those people aren't aware of them until later on. Were they asymptomatic? They did have symptoms. They were still spreading the virus. This is why it can be so confusing. Number two, many people who have to go on ventilators to survive COVID will never be the same. Their survival is a testament to the life-saving value of some of the world's most sophisticated medical interventions. But their deficits reveal the toll of this disease and of hospitalization itself. My colleague Lenny Bernstein has been embedded at the Burke Rehabilitation Hospital in White Plains, New York. That's where he met New York City firefighter Hugo Sosa, a survivor who suffered brain damage as a result of his hospitalization from the coronavirus. The 53-year-old was a captain on the dispatch team that sends first responders to emergencies in the Bronx and Manhattan. On March 26th, he lost his sense of smell, a telltale sign. By April 1st, he was in the hospital. He spent 44 days in the intensive care unit at White Plains, 19 of them on a ventilator. When his lungs finally healed, his sedation ended and his ventilator tube was removed. But doctors could not wake him up for several days. A CAT scan showed the disease had allowed large blood clots to travel to both sides of his brain. In medical terminology, that's called a bilateral stroke. Much of his working memory was badly damaged. Hugo could not walk, stand, or get out of bed on his own. Since entering the Burke Rehab Facility on May 15th, he's come far, so fast, that doctors are unwilling to predict the limits of his progress. His physical endurance, near zero when he arrived, has improved dramatically. Less clear, though, is how or whether his brain will rebound from the twin attacks of stroke and oxygen deprivation. There's no good data on how many people have been placed on ventilators during the pandemic. Studies on the number who survived vary widely. But more recently, doctors who are in the fight on the front lines and work extensively with COVID patients on ventilators believe that somewhere between 50% to 80% of those who go on ventilators recover. But they may never fully recover. Number three. Let me end with a silver lining of this terrible pandemic. Drug cartels are taking a pounding, and there is much less cocaine on our streets than there was three months ago. As a farmer eking out a living in Peru's central jungle, Ruben Leva grew one cash crop that seemed immune from global cycles of boom and bust. But the coronavirus has accomplished what neither previous international crises nor the multi-billion dollar U.S.-backed war on drugs ever could a collapse in the price of the cocoa leaf, the natural stimulant that's the building block of cocaine. Our team in South America says they're calling it the great cocoa crash of 2020. Prices for the leaf in some regions down there have fallen as much as 75%. This illustrates the extent to which the pandemic is disrupting every aspect of global trade, including the traffic in illegal drugs. Lockdowns have sealed regional borders and sharply curbed domestic and international transit, challenging the ability of the cartels to move product by land, air, or sea. 
At the same time, the cartels are dealing with global disruptions in the production and importation of precursor chemicals, like potassium, that are used in clandestine labs to refine the recreational drug. In Afghanistan, virus-related lockdowns have created acute shortages of lancers. That's the name for the specialized workers, many who come in from neighboring Pakistan, who cut the seed pods of mature poppies to produce heroin. The current challenge of sourcing precursor chemicals from Asia has disrupted the manufacturing of illicit drugs, including methamphetamine and fentanyl in Mexico, and amphetamine-type stimulants in Lebanon and Syria. Border restrictions have made it difficult for the Colombians to obtain from Venezuela the cheap gasoline needed to refine cocaine. U.S. officials say they are aware of massive stockpiles of drugs and cash sitting on the south side of the Mexican border as cartels experience problems moving product into the states. DEA field divisions across our country report that supplies of illicit drugs appear to be running low in major metropolitan areas. The street price of cocaine has surged in markets including Miami, Atlanta, New York, San Francisco, and Los Angeles, making it unattainable for many who might otherwise try to buy it. This is a glimmer of good news for public health. And that's The Daily 202 for Wednesday, June 10th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Homan. Stay safe. I'll talk to you tomorrow.